the responsibility for educating the market, like it or not, rests solely with them. Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Okay, I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Today we're going to consider the scenario where you are marketing or selling a large piece of capital equipment where the total cost of ownership may be less than your competitors even though the initial purchase price is higher. Do purchasing teams even care about cost of ownership? What's the best strategy for marketing such a product? I have two experts today. Let's jump right into this. My first guest is Bill White. He is the co-founder and CEO of Offenberger and White Incorporated. Off-White is a marketing consulting firm based in Marietta, Ohio, and they specialize in digital marketing, information mapping, and content development for B2B companies, primarily in the life sciences and laboratory equipment space. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here today. And I also have on the line with me Eric Zotmulder of uh, SciQuest. He is the VP of Product Development. SciQuest offers cloud-based spend management, procurement, in other words, solutions. And so Eric is going to be my expert today on how companies think about and evaluate purchasing decisions. Eric, thank you for joining. Thank you too, Chris. It's great to be here. So what we're going to talk about today is... um, how to approach um, purchasing decisions. So if you're a marketer and you're looking to influence, um, you know, a buying decision, we want to talk about how we influence people in the procurement part and partly around um, larger capital equipment purchases and so on, and a little bit related around sustainability. And this all came about because several months ago, Bill wrote a brilliant post on LinkedIn about how short-sighted purchasing steals research dollars. And I, I'm going to let him fill you in on what that was all about, and then we'll talk about um, what marketers might be able to do um, to sell their products more effectively and how purchasing agents think about those purchases with respect to initial cost and operating expense. And then maybe if there's a way that um, we can spread best practices if um, maybe Eric has some examples of companies who are, are really smart about thinking about these decisions. So, Bill, would you please um, summarize your post for us, if you will? Well, it's yeah, thanks. Uh, it started out as a rant. <laughs> then I was <laughs> able to reel it back in and, and apply some dispassionate uh, language to it. I was at a major research facility um, on another project, and I happened to go into an area where someone was setting up. Actually, they were getting ready to shoot a movie, and they were setting up a lab. And I was asking the uh, the, the folks on the set how they came to choose the the fume hoods that they were and what they were for. And I was curious if they knew what they were talking about, and it turned out that they certainly did. And we were talking about the the two different models that were there and one was uh, a, a product that was based on conventional airflow technology and the other had some new 
um, and more high-tech uh, airflow technology, but cost a little bit more money. And if you think about how much air, conditioned air, either heated or air-conditioned, cooled air, gets sucked out of a facility that's using fume hoods, it's quite it's, – it's a substantial – amount of uh, money and and he recounted for me the fact that they had just lost an order at a major university because this energy saving fume hood cost maybe a thousand dollars more per cabinet than uh, than than the one that was chosen but over the course of its life cycle and i think it was probably about 10 years that he was uh, quoting um they they probably were throwing a quarter of a million dollars away just having uh, gone with the lowest price. Given that uh, I had just come off a project uh, launching a new ultra-low freezer technology which uses half the power of a conventional cascade refrigeration technology at the time um, – uh, it, it struck. Uh, it was. It was pretty raw because we found ourselves having a difficult time getting an audience with purchasing people who were not interested in paying for a product that cost maybe twelve to twenty percent more, but would save a great deal of money over over the life cycle. And and that's when we started to think about how re- scarce research dollars. These folks are out there running in, in races for the Komen Foundation and raising money here and there, lemonade stands and whatever. And if that money is not properly invested, um, then it's, uh, it, it's, it's sad. That is superimposed over what I learned as a capital equipment salesperson over the years where I would go in and walk the hallways. You really can't do that anymore at major research facilities and talk to the users. And it turned out that we learned uh, just in the last few years that the, um, the broader view in terms of, I think you, Chris, you mentioned sustainability. The broader view is that all levels of an institution, all levels are impacted by a capital equipment acquisition. And and a good example starts with the person on the bench, the principal investigator, who uh, may have a preference for a product. Maybe it's that fume hood that uses, uh, you know, takes more air than another. Maybe it's an incubator or a freezer or some sort of uh, centrifuge that just isn't as efficient. But they're comfortable with it because they used it when they were doing postdoc work at uh, NIH or someplace else. But then the other people stacked up in the equation include the lab manager, the facility manager, the maintenance folks, uh, the the financial officer uh, in pharmaceutical companies. I'm sure, Eric, uh, you'll agree that the sustainability people have now taken on more uh, responsibility and political clout. And, And then at the top of the chain, you've got the owner, the architect, and the lab planner. If those people aren't holding hands at the very beginning of this process, whether it's a replacement or a new product or a new facility, then they are not uh, enlightening themselves enough to uh, realize potential savings. And that's where the real 
that's that's where the real sad situation uh, manifests itself. Yeah. So I had to write about it, <laughs> and <laughs> and I I'm gratified with the response. We got a lot of feedback on it. Nice. So I'm just going to throw in a little bit here. So we're describing a situation where, and maybe this isn't always the case, but a facility is being built. And even if the funds don't come from a grant, the choices that people make will eventually be soaked up by grant dollars because over time, you know, researchers bring in funding for their labs. Some of that goes to overhead. And if you're increasing the overhead, which is essentially the operational cost of the fume hood or a freezer, what have you, you're taking grant dollars, right? And event and there's only a limited amount of those coming from NIH or or the Komen Foundation or wherever, sure. right? Well, yeah, and depends on internal billing and how the uh, the principal investigator is charged for using the space. Uh, there are many different formulas, but another thing is if you don't go through this exercise and this collaborative exploration, you're also uh, closing off an opportunity to get um, a added bonus. Um, funds from energy companies, from the power companies who are always looking for ways to create rebate situations for companies that want to invest a little more up front in long-term energy savings. Right. So, Eric, um, so in this scenario that Bill's just described for us, can you explain how institutions make those decisions? And I realize, you know, you don't have your uh, finger on the pulse maybe of every institution, but do different types of institutions think differently about it? And just explain that because honestly, I don't know. I think most of the people listening here probably yeah. don't have a detailed view of how that is done. Yeah. So, you know, it's um, um, we do a lot of business with research institutions, like you said. So a lot of uh, uh, large higher education institutions, but also uh, research facilities like um, even NIH, but um, we, when you come to um, those kinds of institutions, the funding actually has a lot to say about what you buy and what you're able to do. And um, there's really two types of funding. There's general operational funding that is part of the, sort of the startup grant of why the institution is there or why the research is actually happening. And then there is variable funding around how grants come in. And uh, who the grant owner is, and for what particular research it is actually being done. The, so that's sort of one part of it. And, and what's interesting about this is that I sort of have an adage which, which essentially says it's good to be rich, because if you're rich, you don't have to worry about amortization or interest payments or paying a little bit extra for the good in the long run. Um, a great example is, you know, one of one of our customers runs a fleet of cars and all those cars are essentially needing to be replaced but it is that is for cash flow reasons he can only replace cars as they come up due he can't go all out and replace it all he just he just doesn't have the actual money laying around to make the investment so it is really important to understand where the cash comes from and and, and whether it is one-time variable or whether it can be absorbed into the greater good of the organization where you can, over a number of years, make sure you understand what you pay out. The other piece that's really interesting in these organizations is that the these investments are are not necessarily commodity investments, right? They're made for very, very specific reasons to support the research that the leaders on the research side 
really, really essentially make it, make a make a decision on. They have written their grant or they have written their research such that this is what we're going after. So, so quality of the research and the ability to create a stable environment to do the research consistently is really, really important. So, so, so for example, if I started my research in 2005 and I use certain tools and use certain environments to create very specific circumstances that allow me to do things and test it, I need to be able to consistently facilitate that. So quite often there's a reason for the organization to stay with maybe outdated models or circumstances to facilitate what the original goal of the research is. And particularly if you look at uh, medical research or biotech, uh, a lot of this is stuff that needs to be baked over years and years. So there is a, there is a, there is besides the fact that we can do things better now because we're more modern, there's, there's a real set of circumstances that dictates what kind of investments and buying buying pieces um, and you know buying choices have to be made? Um, so the other piece is is, is interesting, and that is that uh, the person that actually buys the stuff or is responsible for buying is a Nobel Prize winner, or it's a it's a really important researcher, or it's somebody with very specific knowledge. So what Bill said earlier, which is I'm I'm familiar with the tool set, I know how to do it. Um, for those people, time is money. If if they have to learn new stuff or if it takes five seconds more to do something that used to take five seconds less, it is an important part of the decision criteria. So um, some, some of these decisions um, cannot be driven by uh, just understanding the true cost, right? The, the pure dollars in and out, but there's a whole set of criteria that, that people really need to understand in order to make the right choices for the greater good of the organization. Right. I understand that. And I've been in a lab and I understand if you get used to using a particular product and there's a way you want to do it and you want to do it consistently over time, that makes sense. I'm, I'm thinking about things like hoods though and freezers. For example, well, I've never seen a freezer or a hood installed in a lab. They, I imagine most of them were installed with the building. So that's a, an earlier choice. And in the case of, you know, a, an important scientist picking his equipment, I understand that. But if he's picking something like a fume hood, which, and maybe I don't understand enough about <laughs> the, the function of a fume hood from one to another, besides, you know, the amount of air it moves. Um, I'm thinking about that person's not going to be in that lab forever. Someone else will move in and they're going to use that thing. So, that the scientist's decision um, has an impact on the institution long after he's gone. That's true. This is Bill again. Um, the, uh, the, the these principal investigators hate uncertainty. They they don't like change. They don't, and, and rightfully so. The repeatability yeah. of what they're doing is manifest in their ability to deliver the results that they're that they're going to deliver whether they're what they want or not is anybody's guess but at least everything is going to have been the same all the way through when you're talking about some of these uh, commodity items um, as opposed to antibodies or reagents or getting cell lines from ATCC or something um, absolutely they they know what they want and they 
don't want to change. And I don't think that the institution well, wants to force anybody to change at that level. On the other hand, when you're talking about a freezer or a refrigerator and all it does, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, it takes a lot to get that done, but it gets cold. It gets cold and it stays cold. So what they really want is they want reliability and that reliability over time, over the history since World War II, for example, in the refrigeration part of the world, has come at a huge, huge cost. And the systems, quite frankly, um, have, have struggled. And when something new comes along, uh, the crafting the value proposition has to be a little different because you're not only able to deliver the cold, but if you're able to do it at half the cost, and if the cost of running, for example, one of these ultra-low freezers is as much as operating your home for a year, and you're a large pharmaceutical company, and you have four, five, six, or 7,000 of these freezers on your campus, and quite frankly, many of them do, you're talking about powering up an entire subdivision. If you can cut that in half without compromising the deliverable, which in this case is a cold place, then you're really bound to examine it. And here's a case where a purchasing department doesn't have the contextual understanding of, of the whole equation. And, and, and nor can they. Have to, they have too many other things to do. But to get an, uh, have an, a purchasing person incentivized solely on the basis of saving money on an a, a initial acquisition is probably short-sighted. And that was where, where I, I – that was my launching pad right there. Right. And so that's that's more of the example I want to talk about. So I'd love to have Eric use this freezer scenario where, you know, you're delivering cold. And I know there's more than just staying cold. There are, you know, elements of, you know, the variability and how the cold cycles that that are very important. Um, and I've talked to people recently who built enormous walk-in freezers that hold in uh, that are going to hold millions of samples that have you know, irreplaceable value, but I have to think, and, and certainly the scientists need to be able to specify that, but there must be someone in purchasing then, <coughs> I would think, or I, I guess what I'm asking is, is there a person in purchasing who, who's now thinking about the long-term operating costs of that? And how is that, how is that weighed or what's the best way you've seen it done now that I've asked three questions Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think there, I think there is a very important role to play for good procurement process, right? So, so what's interesting about sustainability, and, and it's not new. I mean, this is something over the last 15 years, but I think forever people have been looking for faster results at less costs. But the equation of doing it with less impact to the environment and or where we live is is really big. So what I've seen with our customers is that the sustainability officer. Um, is elevated into management positions. It is um, almost in all of our customers a mandatory part of procurement criteria. And the other thing that's happening is that um, procurement organizations are more effective in um, inserting themselves as procurement experts that can help with best practices. And for example, the the almost all organizations that work with us 
have a rule that above a certain amount of investment, there is a proper um, RFP or RFQ or at least a validation of requirements and a total cost of ownership um, um, discussion required, right? And, and I think if you talk about these kinds of investments, you're talking total cost of ownership. You are talking about not just what does it cost now, how much does it cost over five years, what is the energy use, um, what is it to do preventative maintenance, or uh, what is it for break fix, what's the warranties, right, the complexity of the tool set, all that information that if you are just in the trenches doing your research, you may not think about because you need something on your desk in a couple of weeks because you got to refrigerate your stuff, right? right. Um, so, so I think as a procurement organization, but also the tools that you can use, um, you got to bring in that best practice. What I see a lot of behavior happening is that um, if the procurement department gets inserted without expertise, so they don't understand the space that they support or they don't have the expertise in specific areas, the, what, what happens then is that the people that want to buy the stuff will purposefully try the initial purpose to be lower, right? The initial purchase because they are below the purchasing rules, below $15,000. Uh, yeah. I don't need to bring it. I don't need to bring in purchasing, right? I can just do this and I can move on. I can make my choice. So there's a, there's both an obligation on the procurement side to get involved at the right <laughs> places to put in best practice, but there's also an obligation on the procurement side to be knowledgeable and to not be as intrusive so that we don't we don't expend effort on the wrong stuff. I think yeah. I think those are areas where not just the procurement department themselves, but the tool set that you use and the collaboration with suppliers. I think suppliers have a tremendous role to play in educating the right group Great. of people. In that's, what where they I was, can bring. that's where I was going to go, Eric. You're, you, you talk about a three-legged stool here. Uh, mm -hmm. The third leg is the, uh, the responsibility of the manufacturer, the innovator, the people that come up with the technology, the responsibility for educating the market, like it or not, rests solely with them. If they have a better idea, a better way of doing something, uh, they can't permit um, the market to try to assimilate it through some sort of a third party. They have to take direct responsibility for two things. Number one is to organize the information in a way that we can spoon feed it and explain it to people, number one. And number two, they have to be honest. The days of throwing claims out into the market on pieces of literature without any corroboration at all, I hope, are over. And, <laughs> and that must not continue. There has to be an industry self-respect uh, uh, and and in the case of those freezers, uh, the uh, Department of Energy and the EPA have all now gotten uh, to the point where they're getting involved in how people um, can uh, can claim what they do, and and these tests have to be independently conducted, and it's an apples to apples thing. Uh, and only then we we like to tell our clients that a that the best friend that you have as a manufacturer, an innovator, the best friend you have is an educated customer. And if that customer is not educated, that is your fault. And I think there's, I think that what you said is interesting, right? Honest and balanced, because I think if you look at the marketing side of this, um, marketing tends to highlight 
what is best about the product, right? Or what is best about the service. And and what is what is interesting there is that I can walk in and I can say, you know, this product uses this much less energy, right? And therefore total cost is there. But if there's only one person in the world that can maintain it, the moment it breaks, I'm out of service for for, for months, right? So there is there is a true there is a true need for balancing the total. Absolutely. And that's why we stack up all of those uh, those value propositions have to be stacked up and ad- and addressed uh, matched up to the organizational structure. Say it's a large university or a pharmaceutical company, everybody in that enterprise is going to have some sort of a an interest in the the acuity of this decision. Did somebody just buy something down there in the microbiology lab that's going to land us a $10,000 power bill that we don't know about? Happens every day. So, so the the thing that I that I think is interesting from a from a technology perspective is how can technology facilitate this and make it better, right? So, what we're looking at and what we're doing is, um, uh, you got to make sure that everything that is linked to the centrifuge or that is linked to the uh, um, you know the 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 cap that you want to buy, um, you got to understand what the total cost is and you got to make that really easy to look at. If I have a contract with with um, you know, a, a machine that uses disposables. I want to connect not just the disposables that I buy over time, but also the maintenance cost that I had on it, plus the fuel and energy that I use with it, so that I totally know what cost of ownership is. That is something that you need to link together and pull together, right? And then I can understand that. How much do I use today? Is it truly cheaper than what you say? Yes or no? Great. Um, and there's there's a social responsibility, too. What are we going to do right. with those disposables when we're done with them? Are they recyclable? Can we turn them into oil? Right. And yep. that's the sustainability part that's of the right. equation that started to really hold um, political clout at the board level for most pharmaceutical companies. Right. The other piece that's intriguing is is um, what have other companies done, right? What, who else is in the market? Because there may be one, one provider manufacturer who does a lot of education, but then the question becomes, okay, who else does this kind of stuff? Do we have comparables? And... And can I have conversations with them? So part of this is a discovery thing as well. So so we actually have in our application suite the ability to look at um, public entities and what they buy. And um, and you can go out and you can, even our own technology, you can see exactly who bought Cyclist and what they paid for it. And, and you can call the person that has done the procurement and ask them all the questions that you would like to have and create a very credible set of alternatives where you can really do proper sourcing. Um, it's very easy to find that. Right. So we had a number of examples of, of, uh, of schools that were looking for for large machinery and they saw that other companies and other schools have bought it and they paid a completely different price than what they were presented. Nice. So there's a there's a real opportunity there with with good uh, spent reporting tool sets with uh, with good sourcing tools. Right. To create that balance. And, and if you and, and, and it's really a choice on how complex you want to make it. I think there is. There is a boundary. I mean, for for 15k purchased, you don't want to have it very complex. But the moment you start spending half a million dollars, it is worth putting the extra extra effort in. I'm loving this conversation. I uh, I heard something Eric said, and it fits in with what Bill is saying. I'm thinking there's an opportunity, not only to educate procurement, but to educate scientists. Um, you know, the end user 
on how procurement works so that they don't get in that situation where they need something in a hurry and they're not going to get what they want because they didn't think about it soon enough. Yeah, I think uh, this is Bill. I think that Eric would agree that there are as many scenarios as there are institutions out there. They all work differently. But there are a lot of common common denominators. You're right about the fact that we as uh, we typically represent the people that are manufacturing, the innovators, the new technology folks. And we are we are taking on the responsibility of building curricula that that um, work both internally to the company to, to do what we call empowering the last person hired. You can't ask somebody to go out and sell something they don't truly understand, um, especially when you're in a distribution channel with many, many hundreds of salespeople. But on the other hand, you can only expect a bench, an investigator, a, that Nobel Prize winner can only spend so much time trying to figure out what the best centrifuge or uh, you know what the best product um, it, it, that he should look at or her. So the the easier that we, I'm not saying we simplify it like a window sticker on a mileage uh, 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 estimate on an automobile, but there, there, there are certain common cl- uh, classes of products I think that could be easily um, rounded up into an apples to apples comparisons. Uh, and I don't know who would take the responsibility. I think Eric, maybe you know, that's something that you guys probably maybe mm-hmm. working on. It's almost like a consumer reports type of thing. But um, yeah. the, we all we all bear the responsibility uh, as a marketing firm. We bear the responsibility for leading our clients to that reality. Um, and then, as procurement people, uh, they have to have an open mind. Um, and how they're incented, I think, should be examined as well. But that's an institutional prerogative. Yes. You know, it's uh, what we what we found, and this is and the, and, and the easiest comparison that I have is think about buying a car, right? Um, everybody needs a car. Uh, it's essentially a commodity, and we can all identify with it too. Sure. Right. So so, if you really look at the cost of ownership for a car, right? There's, there's the mileage, there's the insurance, there's the repairs, there's the warranties, there's all that kind of good stuff. There's all this data to homogenize it, to make it look the same. In the end, it comes down to what people can afford and how they feel about what they, what they do. That kind of information, right, is easier to get if you have more people buying it. So, so there's a there's a lot of that kind of information that is that is very important to detail out to make available. If you, and one of the big things about research institutions is that um, there's a lot of commoditized, expensive pieces of equipment that need to start falling into the data collection and uh, Energy Star and all those kind of things that are that are needed that are more car commoditized stuff. However, there's a whole lot of cutting edge things that are happening. And cutting edge stuff, you buy at a premium. You have no idea what the long-term costs are because you have never used it longer than a couple months, right? There's a lot of education happening there. So, so I think if you can um, understand when you go out to the market and you start scanning it out, are you in that 
more commoditized piece where it's incremental enhancements or are you in the cutting edge new stuff that's the other piece that you really need to understand very well before you start moving because you're you're probably willing to pay a premium for cutting edge but you're you're absolutely not willing to pay a premium for your commoditized large expenses right and it's up to the cutting edge company who's manufacturing the cutting edge mm-hmm. to build a credible value proposition based That's on right. independently generated information the days of writing copy and throwing it in a brochure and 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 putting that out there as gospel i hope are over yes so i i think this is a good place to wrap up um i I don't know if I have any other specific questions. I I had some, and I might edit this part out. But I was going to ask Bill kind of what his target audience is when he's marketing to these people, and then maybe have Eric comment on on what he sees. You know, I I don't doubt that you're marketing to the right people, but maybe what he sees again as best practices. Because I'm guessing, Bill, that for a lot of these large purchases, you're not just writing content for end users well a lot of the content that a lot of the marketing programs we build are inside out programs that start with that educating the the employees and the sales and service people and by the time you've done a good job of that and rounding up all of the what we call the raw materials you've essentially stocked the cupboard with the the information you need to build out a marketing toolkit that can go outside the front door um, that still doesn't obviate the fact that our that the customers in the life sciences market are their consumers and they are in, in influenced by the same uh, emotional and other um, uh, factors that we are when we buy a car or perfume so as we say selling perfume is selling hope well, in this particular case, we're uh, we're selling, I think, um, un- we're we're selling products that either minimize uncertainty, which is the last thing you want to deal with when you're going home on Friday night and wondering if your your specimens are going to be there on on Monday morning. And we've got tons of examples of catastrophic failures um, based on the, you know these these instances. And the the business of um, making it uh, easy to understand. There, I, we haven't ever found something we could not explain. Um, we, but but that Nobel laureate only has so much time to devote to learning what it is we're trying to explain. So you have to really cut to the chase. Does it get cold? Yes. Does it go fast and spin down? Yes. Does it warm up to three hundred degrees and 58 minutes? Yes. Do we have proof? Yes, we do. And and I think that they really want, people want to know what's the truth. We don't want to be, we don't want spin, not in this market. We don't want that. It it doesn't work. Yeah. And and it's short-sighted and it's unfair. And that's the point I was trying to make. It steals the resources that we need to plow into what real research is and and uh, curing real problems. I like that a little bit of a higher a higher goal that people should be thinking about when they're selling their equipment into laboratories. That- yes, they need to think about who is using this and why. 
we ask that question all the time. Why are we doing this work to help this company sell this product? We only have so much time during the day. Do we want to come in here and sell razor blades? Or do we want to really help people make informed decisions about how they're going to create an environmental uh, condition to grow uh, cells at, at, at 5% oxygen when that's not what the ambient is? And what are the benefits of that? Well, they're huge. They're huge, right. but not until we explain it. Right. Yeah, and I think I think you know, Bill, what you're saying is dead on. It's all about time, right? So where where do procurement people earn their money? They they earn their money by taking all the insignificant purchases, the many 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 that need to be done, off the table and get them done as fast as you can, so that people can spend their time evaluating and procuring those things that really matter. And where you have to spend your your investigative time, your learning time, but also your evaluation time. So the more you can automate, get get the simple stuff and the, the mass stuff off the plate and completely take it out of the game, the more time you will get from your procurement people that know best practices, right? And understand how to do a total cost of ownership and do an evaluation, as well as from the people that actually use the things on a, on a daily basis to sit down and make an informed decision together with the suppliers. So I think that's the key where procurement departments really need to get to. If, if they're still doing paper stuff, they're on the wrong track because, boy, they don't have any time at all. The more they can automate, the more they can go and, and create informed decisions and change what they do and, and, and build something for the institution for the better. We're also seeing that offshore markets are starting to appreciate uh, that same that same equation as well. They don't have time for it. There are tons of companies out there that can bend sheet metal and do things, but in terms of understanding how these products are used and the consequences of a bad spot weld uh, someplace down in a piece of equipment that you'll never see are real, and they need to be communicated to the people on the factory floor. They have to be involved in understanding why they came to work this morning. We've seen that a lot in uh, Asia, and they're starting to come around and understand that the uh, the marketing equation is an inside-out exercise. I love that. I, I'm going to wrap it up here. I, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm, I want to end on the note that we should all be thinking about what we're really trying to do in these specific cases is keep in mind the goal of the research, which is to you know improve human health, improve the environment. <laughs> And, and so on, and that all these decisions have an impact on that. And so with that, I want to thank you, Bill and Eric, for what I think was a fantastic discussion. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. I really enjoyed that conversation. If you enjoyed it as well, a rating or review on iTunes is always much appreciated. That will help us get more guests and... Um, why not send me a note? Tell me what you liked about it. My email address is chris at words, the number two, wow.com. And I will talk to you again in a couple weeks. <laughs>